Well, good morning. My name is Eric Jennings. I'm one of the elders here at Cornerstone, and it's an honor to serve as one of your elders, and it's a joy for me to have this opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning. We're going to spend our time together in Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Uh, So if you want to turn there in your Bibles or on your devices, I would encourage you to do that now, Uh, starting in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, if you just want to raise your hand, one of our ushers can bring you a copy. And as always, if you don't have your own copy of the scriptures, please feel free to take that as our gift for you. Well, over the past year or so, I've been watching the TV series The Chosen. And for those of you that may not be familiar with it, The Chosen is a groundbreaking historical drama based on the life of Jesus Christ seen through the eyes of those who knew him. Set against the backdrop of Roman oppression in first century Israel, the seven-season show shares an authentic and intimate look at Jesus' revolutionary life and teachings. Just full disclosure, that's not my words. That comes from their website. But it's an excellent series. It's really impacted me. There are a couple of things, actually, that have impacted me about the series. And the first thing is, for me, it's just seeing Jesus as a man, Now, I can read the Bible, and it clearly says that Jesus is both God and man, but I'm not sure I really ever embraced the idea of his humanity. But in the series, you see him doing ordinary things a human being would do, cutting wood, making a meal, walking from place to place, being tired, hungry, or thirsty, even laughing. I never really thought about Jesus laughing with the disciples. I think the struggle for me is that I've never actually seen Jesus as a man in real life, so he's always just been God to me. But another thing that's really struck me about this series is that I think that the disciples actually struggled with the opposite problem. You see, they saw Jesus as a man in human form, and sometimes I think it was hard for them to also understand that he was fully God. They were the ones who walked with him. They talked with him. They ate with him. They went camping with him. Well, okay, maybe they didn't see it as camping like we would today. But I think you get the point. I think those that interacted with Jesus on a day-to-day basis would have struggled to see him as being fully God. But even today, we can struggle with this as well. We weren't there when Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding feast. We weren't there when Jesus fed the 5,000 or the 4,000. We weren't there when he raised Lazarus from the dead. The reality is we need to be able to see Jesus as who he really is, both fully God and fully man, to truly understand who he is. About a year or so ago, I was at my regular annual eye doctor appointment, and I'm kind of at the point in life where I'm starting to have a little trouble seeing things that are up close, you know, reading. I wear contact lenses and I see things in the distance, great, but things up close were starting to get a little tough for me, and I had started using reading glasses. That's why I have this really cool large print edition of the Bible. (laughs) It does make it a lot easier, trust me. I was explaining to my eye doctor that I see things that are far away clearly with my contacts but not up close, but if I take my contacts out, I can see things up close really clearly but I can't see things far away. And that's when he said something really interesting. He said, try wearing only one contact. Well, basically, using one eye for seeing things far away and the other eye seeing things up close. 
Now, I admit I thought he was a bit crazy at first, but it seems that for some people, their brain is just able to interpret the signals and figure out which eye to use. Well, you know what? It actually works great. I'm only wearing one contact right now, and I can see you all very clearly, and I can still read my notes in my Bible. I don't really understand how it works, but it does. Now, I share this story because wearing only one contact has allowed me to see things that are both near and far at the same time, and it's just like we need to see Jesus fully as God and fully as man at the same time. But instead of going to the eye doctor, we go to the scriptures to see Jesus more clearly. So with this in mind, after watching The Chosen, I felt like for me, the thing that I really needed was to focus on Jesus as fully God and how he is supreme over all things. So that's what I'm going to do today. I hope that you find it helpful as well. In Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul gives us one of the clearest pictures of Jesus as God. First, we see Jesus as the creator. Go with me to Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What does Paul mean by invisible God? Well, he quite simply means that we can't see God. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see? To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. See, we're not able to physically see God. Remember God's response to Moses on Mount Sinai when Moses asked to see God? In Exodus chapter 33, it says, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, he meaning God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will pro proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God says, Man shall not see me and live. Well, then how do we explain that Jesus was God and people were able to see him? When Jesus came to earth in human form, he was veiled in flesh. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Jesus wasn't just a man who shared revelation from God, but he was the very revelation of who God is. In John 14, 9, Jesus declares, He that has seen me hath seen the Father. And in Hebrews 1, it says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The word image that Paul uses here is used here properly denotes 
that which is a copy or delineation of a thing which accurately and fully represents it. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, meaning Jesus, has made him known. I really like this quote that I found from Warren Wearsby. He says this, Nature reveals the existence, power, and wisdom of God, but nature cannot reveal the essence of God to us. It is only in Jesus Christ that the invisible God is revealed perfectly. Since no mere creature can perfectly reveal God, Jesus Christ must be God. Through Jesus, the world was able to see the invisible God. Now I want to take just a quick sidebar for a moment and address something that kind of popped up in my study. You see, as I was preparing for this, it struck me that in Genesis 1.27, it says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. We see that word image used there. We are made in the image of God. How is the statement that he is the image of the invisible God similar or different than us being made in the image of God? Well, the answer is how the word image is used, in the image of versus the image of. Yes, man was created in the image of God, but that image has been marred by sin. Jesus is the perfect image not marred by sin or representation of God in the only way we can see God. Genesis 1.27 carries the idea of likeness or a resemblance to, whereas Colossians 1.15 means an exact counterpart a representative of. Now, back in verse 15, Paul says that Jesus is also the firstborn of all creation. To understand what he means here, we need to know that firstborn does not refer to time, but to place or status. Firstborn simply means of first importance, of first rank. In both Greek and Jewish culture, the firstborn was the ranking son who received the right of inheritance from his father, whether he was born first or not. Consider the story of Jacob and Esau. Remember, Esau was born first with Jacob grasping at his heel as he came out. But Esau ends up selling his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Now, his birthright represented his rights as the firstborn of the family. He would have been named the leader of the family and received a double portion of the inheritance as the firstborn. But he transferred those rights to Jacob. We see in this example that firstborn represents status or rank, not birth order. And the context of this passage also confirms that Paul is not talking about Jesus being the first of created things, but the true sense is he was born before creation. In verse 16, we see that he says all things were created through him. And in verse 17, he says before all things. But above all of this, the word firstborn was also used in prophecies regarding the coming Messiah. In Psalm 89, 27, it says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, but he is also the creator. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Paul says here, for by him all things were created. He means everything, not limited in any way. And he goes on to expand upon what all things means. He says, in heaven and on earth, 
heaven being everything that exists that is not on the earth, and the earth being everything on the earth. So in other words, everything that exists. He also says visible and invisible. Now we can only see a very small part of our universe, but he's not just talking about physical things here. He goes on to say thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, which are part of the invisible things he is talking about. Thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities describe various categories of angels. You see, false teachers in Paul's day had incorporated worship of angels, which you can find in chapter 2 of the book of Colossians. But these false teachers also claim that Jesus was just another angel created by God. Paul is arguing here that Jesus was not an angel. In fact, he actually created the angels and rules over them. Paul also says that all things were created through him. The meaning of this phrase is very similar to saying that, that things were created by him. Paul here intentionally doubles down on Jesus' role in creation to punctuate his point. The reason Christ is supreme over all created things is that he himself is the creator of all things. But Jesus is not only the creator, he is also the goal of creation. All things were created for him, for his glory, for his purposes. Theologian Albert Barnes draws a parallel to a man building a house. When a man designs and builds a house, he's building it with a purpose in mind, whether it's for himself or someone else. There's a purpose behind the design and the construction. Likewise, all things were created with a purpose, and that purpose is for the glory of the Creator. The beauty and the design of creation draws us to the Creator. Romans 1, 19-20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. We then find in verse 17 that Jesus is also the sustainer of creation. Paul uses the phrase hold together. The tense of the Greek verb indicates his continuous sustaining activity. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Grant Osborne put it this way, the whole universe, meaning all things, finds its unity and coherence in Christ. He provides the force and the energy that keeps it together. For the sin that humankind introduced into all creation has made it so frustrated that it tends at all times toward disillusion. Without Jesus holding all of creation together, it would come apart. Creation has been corrupted. In Romans 8, Paul expands on this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only recreation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Jesus holding all things together, even in its broken state, 
is a beautiful picture of how He is supreme over all of creation. As we continue on in Colossians chapter 1, Paul now turns to his supremacy over the church. Christ sustains fallen creation, and he also sustains fallen humanity through his church. Let's take a look at Jesus as the head. Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. He uses the word head. In the Greek usage, the word head head meant source and origin as well as leader or ruler. Jesus is not only the leader over the church, but he is the source of the church's power. Both aspects of the word head establish that Jesus is the ultimate authority over the body, the church. Paul frequently uses this metaphor of the body when talking about the church. When we become believers, we become part of Christ's body, each one gifted in different ways to serve God and the body. Romans 12.5 says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. I mentioned earlier that creation has a purpose, to bring glory to the Creator. Well, if Jesus is supreme over creation and supreme over the church, there is a connection, and that connection lies in the purpose. The purpose of the church is to bring glory to the Creator by being a part of the story of redemption. The church doesn't exist for the good of its members or to ensure its own survival, but it exists to fulfill the purposes of its head, Jesus Christ. So the real focus of this verse is Jesus, not the church. In other places where Paul uses this body metaphor, he uses it to talk about the interdependence of the members, but here he is clearly focusing on Christ's headship. Christ is the head of the body. He was the originator of the church and is directing and leading it, and every believer that is part of the body. He gives life to the church through the work of the Holy Spirit, and he gives gifts to people and places, them, places these gifted people in his church to serve him in various ways. Paul then goes on to explain why Jesus is the head of the body. He says that Jesus is the beginning. You see, Jesus is supreme over time itself. As we already established, well, then he goes on to say that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. As we already established, firstborn does not always mean the first one in time, but rather the one with the highest rank. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.20 that Christ was the firstfruits, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, Paul is not saying Jesus was the first person raised from the dead. No, Jesus himself had raised Lazarus and others, So he was not the first one resurrected from the dead. But what Paul is establishing is that he is the most important of all those that are raised from the dead. Without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, there could be no resurrection for anyone else. It seems strange to hear Paul use the word born in the same breath as the word dead. These words seem to be in opposition to each other, and normally they would be. But this is God we're talking about. Jesus' death brought forth new life through his resurrection, 
death gave way to victory. Acts 2.24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And now we come to the theme of this entire section of Scripture where Paul says that in everything he might be preeminent. The word translated preeminent is used nowhere else in the New Testament. It means to be chief or to be first. Other translations use the word supremacy. The Gnostic false teachers in Paul's time did not agree with this. They thought Jesus was just one of many to come from God. But Paul clearly argues that Jesus is not just one among many. He is the one and only Son of God, preeminent in everything, supreme over all of creation, and supreme over the church. You see, no believer, no person is the head of the church. Here at Cornerstone, we have pastors that we've hired to lead the ministries of the church, but they are not the ultimate authority. We have a board of elders that are elected by the members to make day-to-day decisions for the church, but we are not the ultimate authority. Cornerstone has a congregational form of government, and the members vote on major decisions for this church, but the members are not the ultimate authority. No, only Jesus is the ultimate authority of this church. He is preeminent in everything, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and the head of the body, his church. Then Paul goes on to say, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I want to key in on the word fullness for a moment. There's a bit of context to this word, I think that helps understand why Paul chose to use it here. The Greek word that is used is pleroma, and it was a word that was commonly used by the false teachers I mentioned a moment ago. They taught that Jesus Christ was just one of a series of emanations descending from God and being less than God. The word pleroma, or fullness, refers to the sum total of all the divine power and attributes. Paul was directly addressing this false teaching by making it clear to those in the Colossian church that Jesus is fully God. All the fullness of God, all his divine power and attributes dwell in Jesus. And we need to also take a look at what the word dwell means here because it doesn't simply mean to reside. God's fullness wasn't something that he placed on Jesus temporarily, like residing in a place for a while and then moving on to another place to dwell. The word dwell used here means to be at home permanently. The fullness of God dwells permanently in Jesus. It is the very essence of who he is. And it's important to say that God would never permanently give his fullness to any created being. The fact that it says that God was pleased that his fullness dwelled in Christ proves that he is fully God. This is one of the strongest statements in the New Testament that confirms Christ's deity. He is fully God, always has been, always will be. When we take verses 19 and 20 together, we notice the use of the phrases in him and through him. The essence of who Jesus is, being the fullness of God that is in him, allows reconciliation to come through him. We could not be reconciled by anyone other than God. So therefore, because the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, we can be reconciled through him. Well, how does he accomplish this? Well, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it was temporary. Ultimately, Lazarus died again. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was permanent. He didn't die again. He ascended into heaven and lives there today. This is how he is reconciling all things to himself. 
It was only through his death and resurrection that we can be reconciled to God by having the penalty for our sins paid off so that we can live forever with him. Which leads to my third and final point this morning, Jesus as the Savior. Going back to chapter 1 of Colossians, starting in verse 21, it says, And you who, were one, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Jesus is not only supreme over creation and the church, he is supreme over eternity, our eternity. Paul is talking about reconciliation here. If there is a need for reconciliation, there must be some condition that exists that requires reconciliation. He says that they were once alienated, meaning they were cut off or separated from God. Well, how did that happen? How did they become separated from God? Well, Paul says they were hostile in mind doing evil deeds. The King James uses the word enemies. By nature, our thoughts are in opposition to God. We don't care about the things of God, only ourselves. And this hostility in our minds leads to evil deeds or quite simply, sin. In his letter, Paul is writing to the believers in the Colossian church, but he is also writing to us today. I want to go back to something Pastor Andy shared with us a while ago and something we revisit often. It should be familiar to many of you, and it's a helpful way for us to understand what it means to be saved. It starts with this, God sets the mark. I read Romans 1.20 earlier, but let me read it again. It says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God created a perfect world without sin and placed man in the center of it. All that he created clearly shows who he is. So the standard that was set is perfection. But the world didn't stay perfect because man was in it. Which leads to the second part. We miss the mark. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. And Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We sin because we are hostile in mind towards God. We have not lived up to the standard of perfection that God set, and therefore we fall short. But that's not where the story ends. There is good news. There is hope through reconciliation. You see, we are not reconciled to God through anything we have done. We are only able to be reconciled because Jesus, living a perfect life, a sinless life, and then taking our sins on himself when he went to the cross and died for us. I mentioned the word enemies just a moment ago. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. I really like the way Albert Barnes describes this reconciliation. He said, No means ever used to produce reconciliation between two alienated parties has had so much tenderness and power as those which God has adopted in the plan of salvation. And if the dying love of the Son of God 
fails to lead the sinner back to God, everything else will fail. Through his life and death, we are saved. Instead of continuing in our separation from God, we are now presented to God by his Son as holy and blameless and above reproach. From death to life, from alienation to being set apart for God without blemish and set free from all charges against us. You see, we miss the mark, but Jesus hits the mark. Romans 3, 22-24 says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are not perfect. We all sin and miss the mark. But Jesus lived a sinless life. He was the perfect sacrifice and only a perfect sacrifice would do. Jesus took our place when he went to the cross. It should have been us paying for our own sins, but we couldn't. We couldn't pay for our own sins because of our sins. It was an impossible situation that seemed hopeless. That is, until Jesus himself became flesh, lived the perfect life, and paid the debt we couldn't pay. He hit the mark we couldn't hit. Here in verse 23 of Colossians 1, Paul talks about our faith being stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Paul is saying that if you have built your faith on Christ, you have a firm foundation. The Colossians lived in a region that was known for earthquakes. So this imagery would have been really impactful for them as they were reading this letter. You need to have a stable and steadfast foundation, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And that leads us to the final step, standing with Jesus. Romans 4, 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you believe that Jesus is everything Paul claims he is, and you believe in your heart that he died for you, and you confess with your mouth that he is the Lord, you have this promise that you will be saved. So, how do we respond to all of this? I talked about my recent experience at the eye doctor earlier, but let me take you back even further. See, after college, when I had vision insurance, I went to the eye doctor for the very first time. I knew I would most likely need glasses because things in the distance, you know, seemed a little blurry. And sure enough, I needed glasses. I remember walking out of the eye doctor's office the day that I got my glasses, there was this bank of trees kind of off in the distance. And I remember just staring at those trees. You see, the detail I could now see was just incredible. It was like I had been living in this two-dimensional world and now everything was in three dimensions. You see, for many years, I hadn't really been seeing things clearly. Only with the help of the glasses did everything come into focus. My prayer this morning is that what I have shared with you has helped you to see Jesus a little more clearly today, that he is fully God. Now, you've heard the evidence from the Apostle Paul this morning for who Jesus is. He is the creator. 
He is the head of the church, and He is the Savior. The question is, what are you going to do with that? In Luke chapter 9, it says this, starting in verse 18. Now it happened that as He was praying alone, the disciples were with Him, and He asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. If you can answer the question the same way Peter did, and you know Jesus as your Savior, if you are standing with him, then you have a stable and steadfast foundation, and eternity is secure for you. But if you're not quite there yet, consider this. Jesus is fully God, And he became fully man when he took on flesh. You know, earlier this week, we celebrated Christmas where we remember Jesus' birth, but Jesus didn't stay a baby. He grew into a man, the only perfect man who is without sin. And only a perfect sacrifice could pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. There are only two options for eternity either in eternity with our Heavenly Father because we have trusted Jesus as our Savior or in eternity separated from God. The first part of our mission here at Cornerstone is to love God. It's our desire that all people come to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord and enter into a loving relationship with God. The future is uncertain, but there is only one hope, and that is in Jesus If you haven't placed your trust in Jesus as your Savior, let me encourage you to not delay. Place your trust in Him today. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we are so thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for how we can learn from it, how we can know You through it. Lord, we know that we are walking in these days in a broken world, a, a world that is broken by sin. Lord, we know that we are not perfect. We have not lived that sinless life, Lord, but you gave us the answer. You sent your Son into this world that he would live that perfect life. He would die a horrible death on the cross, taking on our sins to pay the penalty that we could not pay. Lord, I thank you for that. Thank you for that gift of eternal life with you. Lord, I pray that each one of us would reflect on your word this morning. In your name, amen. Well, if you could join us in this last song. You you may not know all of the words exactly, but uh, you will know the tune, so please stand and join.
this morning and you depart from this place 
let me just encourage you. The world out there is full of people who are lost, who need to hear who Jesus really is. Don't keep that to yourself. Share it with them. Share his love with them. Thank you for being here, and I hope you have a blessed new year.